Okay, well, welcome back. And we are now in our fifth lecture on Keech's doctrines, and this continues the doctrine of justification. Uh, but before we jump into this, I wanted to redress one quick thing that Austin brought up about uh, the bracketing of faith and justification, and I think that's an important issue. But I wanted to just do a thought experiment with you. If faith, love, and all the fruit of the Spirit, just shy of the good works that, are, that follow from that, come together before we're justified, and it's faith only that justifies. It be, it, and righteousness is purely imputed. There's no imputation before faith. It's, it's all after. So the total package of justification comes after regeneration and a holy heart in that sense. Can you see how it would not be a, a leap to then say, well, if you have a holy heart, logically before justification, you can stretch holiness out the rest of your life, and really justification is on the last day. Do you see what I'm saying? So if you say the seed of the whole of the Christian life is, is logically prior to all of justification, then why not extend it out to the last day? And you're justified on the last day, really, in light of a whole life, and you're justified by faith in light of all the whole life you're about to live. That's what they do when they, they start shifting it in that direction. And so the reform insisted, and this is the key point, that Christ's perfect righteousness, his death, his resurrection, but really his perfect righteousness and his death purchase faith in us. So it's logically prior to faith. The righteousness of Christ is prior to faith. And one text they used uh, to prove this, let me see if I can show it to you is 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1, 1 says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we obtain faith by the righteousness of Christ. Um, there's others that they've used. If you look at uh, Romans 8, verse 10, uh, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So all the life that comes by the Holy Spirit in our hearts, the fruit of all the spirit, including faith, which is part of the fruit of the spirit, is because of righteousness, Christ's righteousness, they would argue. So that's the key point. Does Christ's perfect life and death merit and justify the Spirit's work and actually legally cause the Spirit's work in us in every respect. So that's what they were after. And so however you put that together, that's the central point. And that keeps from shifting all that to the last day. So let's continue with our, our second part on justification. Uh, we're continuing to study his doctrine of justification in the second sermon that's titled Justification Without Works. And this sermon was published in 1692. And here he's fleshing out his first point of doctrine, which is that all works done by the creature are quite excluded in point of justification of a sinner in the sight of God. And here he makes a number of arguments to prove this point. Argument one, first Keech argues from uh, Romans 3.27. So if you'll turn there with me. Romans 
Romans 3.27 says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of a law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Keach says that if we're justified by works, then our boasting is not excluded. He confirms this from Romans 4.2, which says, If Abraham was justified by works, notice it doesn't even say because of works, even if works are an instrument and not the ground. If you're justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Abraham, according to Keech, exegeting this passage, was not justified by any works of any kind, so he could not boast. Romans 4, 6 says, just as David also speaks of the blessing to the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Now, some people who say that the Bible never speaks of imputed righteousness directly. You'll read this in some places, uh, but I believe this is a place where it does. It seems plain to me. It says he counts righteousness or imputes, reckons righteousness apart from works. Keach then provides a list of other passages that teach this very same doctrine. And I'm just going to read them to you because they're in Keach's mind. They'll help us as we study what Keach says. Galatians 2.16 says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in, in Christ Jesus in order that to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. And then Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. That comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then finally, Titus 3.5, and this ends up being important, and it should go on your list of passages, and we'll look at it a little more. It says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So that's his argument, and now he begins to raise objections. People object to his teaching. So the first objection is, some people argue that Paul is only excluding works of the law. We've seen this already. But Paul is not excluding works done under grace or the gospel. So Paul's not speaking against faithful, loving obedience to Jesus. Well, here's Keech's first answer. He says it's clear that Paul excludes all works done by the creature, either before grace or after grace. Paul always excludes works of obedience to the gospel as well as from the law. And this is that verse, Titus 3, 5. He says, because of works done by us in righteousness, not because of works done by us in righteousness. So there it's clearly that we're not saved because of things that we do, even as righteous Christians. Not, not the godly works of believers. That's not what saves us. And now we come to Keech's second argument, argument two. He says the fact that 
All works done by the creature are completely excluded, and the point of justification is clear from the different natures of works and grace. So he's going to argue the Bible teaches there's something different between works and grace. Romans 11.6 says, For if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Now, in this passage, we have the juxtaposition of grace and works when it comes to election. So some people will say, well, Paul's not talking about justification there. He's talking about election, which is true. But Keech says the principle still holds. The reason that grace and works are opposed in election is because they're of different natures. And so therefore, they're of different natures, not just in election, but also in works. If justification is partly of works and partly of grace, then justification is no longer by grace. Keech writes, that which is of the free grace of God, and I'm quoting, is not by any works done by the creature, but justification is of the free grace of God. Therefore, not by works done by the creature. That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So that's the second argument. All works are excluded because if they aren't, then justification is not of grace. Here's the third argument. The gospel clearly reveals that faith is the way to justification, not love, good works, or mercy, which are works of the law. So the terms of the law, according to Keech, are do this and live. Or the man who does these things will live by them. That's the law. It's the essence, the very nature of the law as a covenant. But the terms of the gospel are believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Keech concludes that that doctrine which confounds the terms of the law and the gospel together in point of justification is a false and corrupt doctrine. But the doctrine that mixes sincere obedience or works with, of any kind done by us with faith in point of justification confounds the terms of the law and the gospel together in point of justification. Therefore, that doctrine is a false and corrupt doctrine. So he's, he's basically making a syllogism there. So how might some object to this? Well, he raises known objections to his, his doctrine. Here's an objection. He says, some might object that the terms of the law, this is important, involves perfect obedience, but the terms of the gospel consists in faith and sincere but imperfect obedience. Therefore, it does not confound the law and the gospel. So here now, Keech is going to give many reasons that the gospel is not a command to believe and obey. It's not a call for the whole, the whole package. The gospel is not your sanctification. That's what he's going for. So first, his first answer is, that's not the difference between the law and the gospel. That's what he says, that the way they put it is not the difference between the law and the gospel. The, the true difference between law and gospel is that one requires doing while the other requires believing. Second, Paul frequently contrasts faith and works. Galatians 3.12 says the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. So he's, he's 
going after the difference, the true difference between law and gospel, and he's insisting that the gospel cannot command a life of holiness and obedience. He says, consider that the Judaizers of Paul's day didn't think that they could be justified by their obedient, their perfect obedience to the law. So if you say the works of the law are perfect obedience, but the works of the gospel are imperfect faithful obedience. Well, the Pharisees didn't believe that. They thought they could be justified by their sincere but imperfect obedience to the law out of love to God and faithfulness to Him. And then Keach says, This new doctrine of justification by an easier law is really the same thing as old Judaism. And how did Paul respond to the Judaizers? Well, he told them in Galatians 5.4, you have fallen away from grace. It wasn't the fact that the Judaizers insisted on keeping God's moral law that was falling away from grace. No, it was the idea that the gospel obliges us to obey God's moral law that was falling away from grace, falling away from the teaching of grace, falling away from the true doctrine of the gospel. So that's the second argument in response, Keech's second response. Keech's third response to the notion that the gospel consists in faith and sincere but imperfect obedience. His third response is, God excludes all human works from justification because we must be justified by perfect righteousness. He says, unless we have perfectly righteous works in our own person, then we can't be justified by our own works. He writes this, and I'm quoting, the law of God is but a transcript or a written impression of that holiness and purity which is in his own nature. That's good language to use. Should use it. What is a law? It's a, the moral law of God is a transcript of his own character and serves to show us what, a, what righteousness we must be found in if we are ever justified in his sight. Nor can it once be supposed by any man, unless blinded, that God will ever loosen or relax the sanction of his holy law or abate a jot or tittle of that righteousness of his holy nature and law and what it requires in point of our being justified in His sight, it must all be fulfilled by us and our own persons or by a surety for us and imputed to us. So here he's going to show terrible consequences that follow if you relax the law, if you say God's moral law is relaxed so that you can keep it for your justification. First, and he's repeating himself a little here, but he wants you to get it, okay? (laughs) So I'm going to repeat it. First, it implies that God sent His Son to destroy the law, not only to take away jots and tittles, which would be bad enough, but the whole law. Second, God would lose much honor in relaxing His law. What does it say about God's character if the law that reflects His character can be relaxed? It implies that God is unholy or imperfectly holy if He can relax His moral law. Also, it's impossible to keep a perfect law of holiness if you're a sinner. The Bible teaches in Galatians 3.21, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. Clearly, the Bible says, no law was given that could give life to a sinner. Why? Because the law is too strict. In theory, a man could obey a perfect law, but even the first innocent 
man, Adam, did not keep this perfect law, though he had sufficient grace to do so. If Adam couldn't keep the law, how could a sinful man possibly keep the law? The very thought that a sinner could achieve justification by perfect obedience to the law is absurd. In Galatians 2.16, Paul says, By the works of the law, no one will be justified. So that's the third point. So he continues to refute this idea that the gospel includes commands of life and love and holy obedience of the Christian for justification. Fourth, all works done by human obedience are excluded from justification because gospel justification is a great mystery. This is important. And preaching this gospel is counted foolish to the wise of this world. Now follow him on this one. Unregenerate men cannot comprehend the true gospel that Christ and his righteousness justifies us. Unregenerate men think that their works are sufficient or they can't possibly understand that they could be justified by the obedience of the, and righteousness of another. Now, here's his point. On the other hand, to say that people are justified by their own sincere obedience, by believing the truth of God's word and living a godly life is something that sits very well with natural wisdom. It makes perfect sense to the fallen mind that one could be justified by his own best efforts and sincere faith and obedience. But this fleshly wisdom is contrary to Scripture, which plainly says in Romans 5.19, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What right do we have to say that our obedience makes us righteous when plainly the Apostle Paul teaches it's Christ's obedience that makes us righteous? But that's what natural men do. Whenever unregenerate hearts meet with the terrors of the law, they think they need to change their lives and resort to religious duties. This is the way all the heathens and false religions of the world think. They think they have to do good works to God's acceptance. And yet the world through its wisdom had not attained a knowledge of God. Rather... God was pleased to save sinners through the preaching of the gospel of justification by free grace alone, through faith. That's the fourth response. Here's the fifth one. He says, when we have done all that we can do, we are still only unprofitable servants. So Luke 17, 10 says, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. But those who teach that they can be justified by sincere obedience do not believe what this verse teaches. They don't believe that they're unprofitable servants. Rather, they believe their good works and their best efforts justify them before God. They believe they've done all that God requires of them according to an easy, sincere obedience. Those that teach that our sinful or imperfect obedience is all the law requires believe that they are faithful and worthy and profitable servants who achieve justification based on their obedience. So that's the fifth point. So the gospel does not include or does not command faithful, sincere works of holy obedience for those five reasons. And then here's a sixth one. The Bible says that we're justified on the ground of the righteousness of God. 
Therefore, it follows that all our own righteousness is excluded. It's called the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of the faithful. Romans 3, 21 to 22 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, this is not referring to the essential righteousness of God, His eternal transcendent, essential righteousness. Rather, it's referring to the mediatorial righteousness of Christ according to his human nature, who is God as well as man. And then he points out, this is why Paul renounced all of his own righteousness, that he might have the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus. Please turn with me. Let's look at Ephesians, or sorry, Philippians 3. We read part of this, but he's going to make, I think, a very important set of points out of this passage, so we need to look at it. Philippians 3, verses 8 to 10. This is Paul, who has just remembered his life as a Pharisee, circumcised on the eighth day, verse 5, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, and then at the end of verse 6, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, that is apparently to all other people he was blameless according to the law. And then verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss. Notice the present tense, this is going to come into play. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings and become like Him in His death. So, now some people say that that Paul here is speaking of the righteousness that he had as a Pharisee only. They say Paul is not denying sincere gospel obedience. He's denying any personal righteousness that he had as a Pharisee. He's denying proud Jewish legal self-righteous works, but not love and faithful obedience to Jesus. But to answer this, Keech says a number of things. First, he says, this seems very strange. Follow this. This is funny. he He gets feisty. He says, this seems very strange because they appear to be saying that Paul's imperfect pharisaical obedience to the law is rubbish. But then they turn around and they say that imperfect obedience to the gospel is worthy of our justification. Strange that God would render imperfect legal obedience and accept and accept. would reject imperfect legal obedience and accept imperfect gospel obedience since they're both sin-laden imperfections. (laughs) Second, Keech says that this text has always been received by sound Protestant theologians as one of the pillars of the doctrine of justification on the basis of Christ's righteousness received by faith alone. He's not only rejecting the righteousness he had before conversion because of the present tense. He's he's rejecting the righteousness he has after conversion as well. Third, Paul rejects all works whatsoever done either in natural ability or legally done under the gracious assistance of the gospel. He's rejecting all works under justification. 
Fourth, we know Paul is rejecting all creaturely works because he does so by leaning wholly upon the righteousness of God. Not some other form of his own righteousness. So he doesn't say, and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own pharisaical legal obedience that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from my faith that depends on faith. He doesn't say that. He's juxtaposing his righteousness to God's righteousness. That's his righteousness. Even now, present tense, Paul, the believer. Fifth, Paul intended to be found in this righteousness from God at death and on judgment. Do you really think that he wanted to be found in any of his own righteousness on that great and dreadful day? How would he oppose the accusations of Satan and the convictions on the, of the law on that day? Would it be by looking back to his own holy life or by looking to the all-sufficient righteousness of Christ? Surely only by looking to Christ. Keach writes, Sirs, there is no way in order to peace of conscience for us but to do as Paul did, to renounce all of our inherent righteousness and obedience and fly to Christ in the doctrine of justification by the grace of God through the complete righteousness of Jesus received by faith alone. So that's his sixth point, answering them. His seventh point of why works of love and obedience are not part of the gospel for our justification. He says, seventh, our works have, are excluded from justification because God justifies us on the basis of a righteousness that completely satisfies His justice and appeases His wrath. Only that kind of perfect righteousness can possibly deliver us from condemnation and from the curse of the law. Only Christ's righteousness deserves the reward of eternal life but the new theologians, meaning the Baxterians, say that Christ is our legal righteousness, but he's not our evangelical righteousness. Jesus fulfills the legal righteousness, but we must fulfill the gospel righteousness for our justification. But if Christ's righteousness is that which delivers us from God's wrath, from death and condemnation, then there is no other need for any righteousness at all for those things. So here's an objection. He raises a, an objection that people would throw at him. And he says, some point out that God requires an evangelical righteousness in us. He requires us to believe and obey. Christ is our inherent evangelical righteousness. So they say that we must be justified by it. Since if we have it, we'll be acquitted on Judgment Day, and if we don't have it, we'll be condemned on, just, on Judgment Day. Therefore, we, this must be part of our justification. Well, Keach answers this in four parts. First, according to John Owen, Christ is just as much our evangelical righteousness as He is our legal righteousness. Our evangelical righteousness or our sanctification is nothing but the fruit of His obedience and death. It's His righteousness. Second, those who have evangelical righteousness are already fully justified before they had it. There is no, thus no evangelical righteousness can contribute to justification because justification is complete before you have it. 
Evangelical righteousness comes after justification. In other words, the tank is full. You can't put anything else in it once you're justified. Your works, there's no room for your works in justification. They're full up with Christ. Third, God never appointed our personal righteousness for justification. Rather, He appointed it to evidence our faith and our justification before others. (coughs) Fourth, if we are in any sense justified by our evangelical righteousness before God, then we will have something to boast about before God. Now back to Keech's major reasons that the gospel covenant does not command both faith and evangelical obedience. It comes from faith as a, as a life for our justification under the gospel. So the eighth point, human works are excluded from justification because according to Scripture, it's by the obedience of the one man that the many are made righteous. This is a fascinating point. I'd never heard this till I'd read Keech, but he says, huh, if they are right, then the Scripture would say that it's by the obedience of the many that makes the many righteous. That's what it would say if the neonomian doctrine were true, but it doesn't. It's the obedience of the one that the many are made righteous. Ninth, if anyone was ever justified without works of sincere obedience, if anyone was ever justified without works of sincere obedience, then all works of obedience are excluded from justification. And here's where he says, uh, the thief on the cross was justified without works of obedience. I disagree with this point. I think he actually did have works of obedience. But then he does point out that elect infants who die in infancy are justified and saved that way. They have no works of obedience. You think of, you know, small babies that aren't formed enough to have consciousness at all. You know, just a few cells. And yet, elect infants dying in infancy go to heaven and they're justified not because of works, but because of God's free grace and the imputation of Christ's righteousness alone. And then he says, and all men are justified this same way. If the only righteousness of infants is the righteousness of Christ, and that is enough for them, then the only righteousness of adults is also the righteousness of Christ, and that is enough for them. Tenth, Christ is offered to sinners as sinners, not as righteous persons but as ungodly ones without previous qualifications. Remember, the Lord Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. This means sanctification cannot precede justification. Paul told the ungodly jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He didn't tell him, save yourself through your works to be justified. Eleventh, if a man can walk by faith knowing no sins against himself so that his conscience cannot accuse him, still, he can't be justified by that sincere obedience. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.4, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Of course, that passage is not really, it's not about justification, it's about qualification for ministry. And yet the, the principle still holds. Paul wasn't aware of anything against himself. And yet it doesn't mean that he wasn't guilty of something. 
Keach gives the example of Job in the same vein. He says, Job was a righteous man. He repeatedly said he wasn't aware of any sin against himself through the whole book. And then yet through the sifting of Job and the trial that he experienced, he became sensible of his sinfulness. And by the end of the book, he had to repent in dust and ashes. So thinking you're righteous and you're walking faithfully before God and you're trusting in Jesus and you're performing works of evangelical obedience and therefore surely I must be justified. That's no proof, no evidence at all that you're doing that. How do you know that you're faithful to the Lord and you don't need to repent of something still? Keach writes, no doubt Job's righteousness was a fruit of faith. He knew that his Redeemer lived, but yet for all his holiness and uprightness and sincere obedience, he abhors himself and repents he ever had such a conceit of the worth of his own righteousness. And now we come to the application of this sermon. That's the substance of it. We have the application. This sermon reproves anyone who undermines the doctrine of free grace or of justification by faith alone and mixes faith and works together in point of justification. Hopefully, this is Keech, the arguments of this sermon prove that those who teach justification by works are not true gospel ministers and should be avoided, even if they speak with the tongues of angels. He goes on and makes further application. He says, first, never think that your own righteousness can justify you, even through Christ's merits. Christ alone is your whole Savior. He doesn't simply make you able to save yourself. He truly and fully saves you. Never think that your faith is your righteousness. Rather, your faith lays hold of Christ and His righteousness, which alone is your righteousness before God for your justification. Dear Saint, if you're trusting in your moral obedience for justification, you should tremble. Your imperfect works will not stand on judgment day. This doctrine, though, is a comfort to sinners who know that they're sinners, but it's a terror to the self-righteous and the Pharisees. Look unto Christ alone. Believe upon Him and be saved. Here's the objection. In his application, he raises an objection. Some say that this doctrine of justification without works will lead to antinomianism and lawlessness. But Keach says we are for the law as Paul was. We uphold the law fully, first, in justification by saying that Christ must satisfy it in our place. The neonomians destroy and weaken the law in point of justification because they say that Christ died to purchase a new weak and easy law that you keep for your justification. But we uphold it. We also uphold the law in sanctification. We would have men act in holiness, obeying God's good law from a sincere faith and love with right motives and not the lawless legal motives of the Pharisees who only practiced an external obedience to God's law. The only way God's law can be truly satisfied is if you abandon any sense of your own inherent righteousness for justification and flee to Jesus for justification by faith alone. In Him, you'll find a true and sincere faith and strength to keep His commandments from a heart of love to God and love to others. Here's another objection. 
But it's hard to believe that Christ alone justifies us and it's hard not to trust in our own holiness. It is, isn't it? But Keach says, but is not Christ able to save you? Is he not able? Are you unwilling to be saved unless you might share with him in your salvation? Is resting that hard? Can you not drink when you're thirsty? Come to Jesus and live. The gospel is not a conditional covenant of holiness and good works. The gospel is a covenant of free and absolute grace in the Lord Jesus. So drop all of your vain strivings after personal righteousness before God and go to Jesus. If you're already a believer, then admire His free grace once again. Look to Him who died for you, the just for the unjust, who bore your sins, who made sin, who was made sin for us, He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He gave Himself up for you. Now live to Him who died for you and rose again. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you have been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.